a team of archaeologists had occasion recently to open the crypt of Beethoven in Vienna. When they did, they found the great musician's zombie inside, still working at his desk, furiously crossing out with quill and ink all the musical notations he had once made in his many librettos and papers. Sir, what are you doing? asked the lead archaeologist. Beethoven looked up and said, I'm decomposing. <clears throat> I'm afraid that's all you will get by way of humor this morning. The story of Lazarus in chapter 11 sits literally at the center of the Gospel of John. The ten chapters preceding it are called the Book of Signs, because they recount the miracles Jesus performed throughout his ministry. The ten chapters that follow are called the Book of Glory. They narrate events that lead to the crucifixion, because in John's theology, the crucifixion is when Jesus is glorified. It is the high point of God's love for us who so loved the world that he gave his only son. So the raising of Lazarus is the pivotal point between the book of signs and the book of glory, and you might say it belongs to both. It is the final and greatest sign that Jesus performs, but it also prefigures the glorious death and resurrection of Jesus. This miracle also becomes the catalyst in John that moves the Jewish high priests to finally decide they must put Jesus to death. He's become too powerful, and his following will only grow until it's completely out of their control. If the Romans perceive the crowds gathering around Jesus as uppity, they won't discriminate between the Jews for Jesus and the others, but will punish the whole Jewish nation as a result. So this story is a turning point in the narrative journey of Jesus as told by John. And I'm afraid that's all you'll get by way of scholarship this morning. If this is the central story in John's Gospel, what is its central moment? On what does the whole structure hinge? Its crux is the silence after Jesus cries, Lazarus, come out, and we wait to see what will emerge. Bethany sits on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, two miles from Jerusalem. As we walk with Jesus, we are met by Martha on a lonely road outside the village. Lazarus is dead, she says. Already we know this, Jesus told us before. When Mary arrives with the other mourners, their ululations of anguish precede them, echoing off the mountain and tingling up our spine. Jesus weeps overwhelmed. We've never seen that. Miracles we've seen, blind men given sight, but never Jesus' tears. 
It's unnerving. For a moment, the bottom drops out and we wonder, why would a Messiah cry? But then Jesus says, take me to him. We travel en masse to the tomb, the cave, where Lazarus has lain for four days. And four days means too late. He's beyond hope. We Jews know a dead person's spirit hovers around a neighborhood for three days before leaving us forever. Still, we hear Martha say, even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. The dusty path, the heat, those ululating cries that will not stop. Our nerves are frayed. Remove the stone. But Lord, the stench. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Remove the stone. You and I, we start to shake uncontrollably, absolutely frightened. The stone is rolled away. Putrefaction hits us and we turn away, covering our mouth and nose and gagging. Yet in the midst of all our groans, Jesus gives thanks to God. And then he shouts, Lazarus, come out. Slowly, we all turn our faces to the open tomb, mouths covered, eyes wide. And in the seconds that follow, his words echoing away, the mind of every one of us on those hills outside of Bethany seizes on a single thought. Our gaze is fixed upon the darkness of the cave. My God, could this really be? It is dark. This tomb lets no light in. Hermetically sealed by childhood trauma, endless shame, wounded pride. Who embalmed you? Your father? Your ex? Your assailant? Your boss? You? What binds you? Anger? Loneliness? Low self-esteem, alcohol, debilitating illness, self-satisfaction. There are so many paths to the tomb. Choosing to not die in there is the only way out. It is dark. We've been shut in for almost two weeks by this pandemic, and we fear the worst is yet to come. This tomb we all share right now. A doctor friend in New York City so overwhelmed she can't see straight. The shortages, the dread, the danger, the deaths, the boredom, the rage. You don't need me to tell you. You're surely following the news feeds, transfixed as I am, 
Nerves jangled, spines tingled, as the darkness seems about to swallow us up. Just like you, I don't know what to do. Except to pray every day with William and with some of you online. And that seems to help. It grounds me in my faith, a, a tiny little flickering flame I offer to God each morning. I don't know what to do, but I phone parishioners to check in on them. I send checks to food banks and to friends I know are struggling financially, and that seems to help. I feel more connected with community and less powerless. What can you do, you, to breathe through this suffocating time, to plant your feet in the presence of God, to call out in the darkness for the others entombed with you? Just like you, I don't know what to do. And yet, I'm beginning to see a pattern. Almost like a slivered shaft of light has found its way into this darkness to reveal something new. In that light, in that little light, I see one of our parishioners donning her mask and gloves, carrying her wipes, and going shopping for her mother and her elderly neighbors. I see an older friend who lives in San Francisco, opening her apartment door to find a saran-wrapped plate of cookies in the hallway from her hipster neighbors. I see William writing cards and making calls like a madman each day to those whom he knows are in distress. I hear of a friend's son, owner of an independent internet service provider, who has partnered with his city to provide internet access to residents of low-income housing so that they're not cut off while sheltering, and so their children can keep up with online studies, risking his health like so many others by going out in public every day to install and service internet connections. And I read this tweet from Matt Johnson, professor of English at the University of Oregon. Dropped off wipes at my mom's quarantined nursing home and the manager saw my gloves and asked how I found some. So I went home and got my other box for her. And then she said, how much? And I said, you're joking? It's my absolute honor. Then she cried. So I went to my car and cried too. These are lessons from the tomb. Learn them. How the birds can chirp so madly early in the morning. That the sound of rain on windows makes your heart sing. That the owner of your local coffee shop needs your help right now. Learn the lessons of entombment while there's still time in the darkness. Learn once and for all that many people live paycheck to paycheck, just one health crisis away from disaster. Learn 
how devastating it is that so many Americans still have no health insurance that they would actually be turned away from hospitals even in the midst of this pandemic and left to die. Learn that millions do suffer from loneliness and solitude every day. And this is what it feels like. This is there every day. Learn how profoundly interdependent we truly are. It took a pandemic and its indiscriminate spread without regard to class, race, gender, sexuality, religious belief, beauty, or power. It took this great leveler to teach us that wonderful, awful, necessary lesson that we are ultimately in this together. And we must learn to live together and care for one another, and the least of these, the most, or we will simply die together. Will you truly learn these lessons? And how will you emerge from this tomb? That is your central question, your pivot point, your hinge. Will you shake off the bindings of how things were and insist, and insist once this is over, on something better for yourself, for everyone? Will you widen your focus to encompass more people than before? Or will you, when the stone is finally moved away two or 18 months from now, will you step forth with all the bindings that tie you to yourself intact, go back to the way things were, find your groove of comfort once again, the one you missed so much, will you continue to play dead? Because the life you choose to live once outside this tomb will be the stench you carry. And it will rise up to heaven, fragrant or otherwise. I love you. Learn the lessons of entombment. They might just be what saves us. It is dark. You can't even tell if your eyes are closed or open. Faintly, then louder, you hear an eerie sound. Ululating shrieks from somewhere past the darkness. Your heart constricts, does not beat. Then louder, the sound of something heavy being moved nearby. The utter darkness somehow lighter now. Am I alone? Am I loved? Then a voice, it shouts your name, it cries, come out, commanding, pleading, longing. Suddenly you exhale, then intake a sharp breath, 
and your entire mind seizes on a single thought, your gaze fixed on the light breaking upon you. My God, could this really be?